Welcome to our podcast. I'm Josh Way. I'm Dan Hammer. And this is the show where we revisit movies one or both of us have seen before and find out how they hold up. How are you holding up, Josh? I'm holding up great, Dan. Thanks for asking. <laughs> wow. Uh, I'm doing good. What's that? Tell me something about your life. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. The tables have turned. I'm fine. I'm busy and happy. B and H. Yeah. As the kids say. As they do. I noticed that movies are like, either my local theaters are just not doing well in terms of like getting good titles, or it's just a real like dry spell. I I had the worst time. I had a couple opportunities that I could have gone, and I just decided not to because there was nothing I wanted to see. The exception, of course, is mid. As are we calling it midsummer, midsummer, yeah, or whatever. It's just midsummer, but it, yeah, I'm a, I'm avoiding a domestic dispute, um, <laughs> which would happen if I went alone. But yeah. I'm really looking forward to that one. Otherwise, there's nothing there that I want to see. Yeah, and I don't know. Sometimes I don't know if I I become aware of movies that I'm excited about, but then they're only in like major cities, and I can't see them easily. There's this movie. Uh, the last black man in San Francisco. Yeah. That I've seen people on Twitter who have seen screenings, but I haven't Mm -hmm. seen a whiff of it around here. Yeah. I haven't seen that. Um, Some people are excited about Spider-Man for Jake Gyllenhaal. I guess he's in that. Yeah, he is. Suddenly everybody on my Twitter feed loves Jake Gyllenhaal. Hmm. I can see what they're saying. Yeah. He's a cool dude. But I, but I feel like he's just sort of been sort of a, a sleeper actor. He's always there, always reliable, never really had his big moment, though. Right. Well, and Keanu was the dude of the hour just a week or two ago. Oh, it, I mean, it's so difficult and so easy to be the guy. Right. Because it takes nothing from you just to become the guy. But what that little magic something that gets, you know, all the Twitter film gays excited. It seems to, yeah, okay, so we're talking on two different levels. You're talking about Twitter film gaze, and I'm just talking like Twitter. It's the same thing. Okay. Stop fooling yourself. Right. I want you to finish that statement. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's what's your level? I don't, I just like pop culture, like there's just as many girls as, as dudes celebrating Keanu as being everything. He's everything. And I guess it's just because it means this actor has been around long enough and not been exposed as a complete turd that it's like, oh, the best. I don't I guess so. I, I, I like him. He's charming. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve accolades. And Jake Gyllenhaal, too. They're, they're good. They're. I do like Jake Gyllenhaal more lately than I ever did. I liked, um, I mean, Nightcrawler isn't new anymore, but that to me was a turn for him. Yeah. And then his, you know, Velvet Buzzsaw nuttiness i right really enjoyed and uh i guess i might as well get to spider-man far from home because that's one of the titles i did see in the last week oh you did see it i did see it and uh i liked it it's great i am having a little bit of superhero fatigue i think many people are yeah even those of us who are who can be into it but uh with the end game buzz this is kind of like a little light little treat as a little epilogue after Endgame, it it continues some of the the story threads and ties them up a little more. But it's a very breezy and fun movie. They've taken a very light and straight up comedic approach to Spider Man in these recent movies, and uh, it's great. Yeah, a lot of fun. Well, that's good. I did think about going to it. It was the only other thing that I thought eh, maybe 
I didn't though because I I released myself. Yeah. I thought, do you really want to go to this? Do you want to spend two hours of your life watching this? Or do you just feel like for the good of your podcast, you need to have seen something? And right. I decided that that was the reason why I would have gone. Hmm. Yeah, I can't say you missed a whole lot, especially if you're not, you know, it's a weird place to check in with the Marvel Universe anyway, in an epilogue of an epic series <sighs> of 22 movies. There's a whole universe now? Oh, yeah. Oh, there has been since 2008, Iron Man 1. This is part of that? Yes, it is. Uh, this is Spider-Man. It is. Spider-Man is a Marvel character. He was brought into the MCU in Captain America Civil War a few years ago. So it's the same characters? As what? As all the other things, like Iron Man is yeah. in Spider-Man? Iron Man is in uh, the previous Spider-Man movie. It would be spoilery to say more than that. But yeah, he's kind of the mentor of Peter Parker. Gives him his tech, makes his suit do all kinds of cool things. And I'm not okay with this. I'm sorry. You know, what, what's going to happen next? Enoch is going to have lunch with Jesus? Like, I mean... In the Bible universe, it's the same thing. Right. They are, you know, they're adjacent. They're in the same canon. Jesus was always there. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> but these are, these are characters that were overlapping in the comic books 60 years ago. So it's not, uh, it's not just cynical corporate what? synergy. It's also that, but. Oh, that, I, this was way more than I expected. Really? So you thought it was just yeah. a simple little uh, isolated Spider-Man experience. I didn't know any of this about any of these movies. This is too complex for me. It's very much, it's like big budget, it's it's TV. It's big budget movie theater TV shows where you now have, you know, Avengers Endgame was a season finale and you have continuity between different franchises and Sam Jackson is in all of them as Nick Fury and callbacks and little setups for the next one. If you stay through the credits, you get a scene that teases what's coming up in the next one. I remember the Flintstones met the Jetsons once. Yeah. Is it like that? It's kind of like that, if that helps. So minor spoiler for this movie. Jake Gyllenhaal is, seems like a hero. If anybody knows the comics, they know that his character is a villain, but they play him as, as a hero, and then he gets kind of like he does a turn. And uh, he's really good. He's having a lot of fun. I'll just take your word. I probably won't see it. That's fine. Well, Dan, what did you see? Um, give me a second. Yeah. Check that out to me. Is movie phone dead, by the way? Movie pass. I'm sorry. Movie phone is not dead. Movie phone. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of dead. Remember when you could call it and be like, movie phone. (laughs) Yes. Remember that? Remember when it was one number off from Kramer's number? And so he just became the movie phone guy. Movie pass does appear to be dead. I got an email as a subscriber letting me know that because they need to make some app upgrades, they're shutting down the service um, for an unspecified amount of time and nobody's getting billed during that time. And it sure does seem like shutting down because a lot of companies update their apps and they do it frequently. Yeah. Even if they were creating a whole new app from scratch, it seems like they would make it ready to use. And then, you know, at 12 AM at this day, it's going to change. And what upgrades exactly are they going to be offering that require the shutdown? Because it's the simplest technology compared to what other apps are capable of. Right. It, it, it just shows you movie times and you click OK. Right. If they're just making their existing interface a little more slick, if they're not bringing full e-ticketing or whatever, then it's not really. 
Yeah, it just seems like a an excuse to shut down business and stop uh, hemorrhaging money. Yeah. Well, it's a shame, and you're one of the uh, you're one of the diehards, Dan. How how much would you say that you actually have used Movie Pass in the recent months? Uh, oh, in the recent months, not very much. I just really prefer my Regal Theater. Yeah, it has the best facility the best seating it's just the best experience and so i like going to that theater so i use movie pass for that and i get only three movies a month but paying 10 bucks for three movies at the place i want to go isn't bad sure i do use it so this will this is a loss for you (laughs) it's a slight loss because i am a diamond member over at regal i am not accruing points like i'd like to be the nice facility is certainly not enough to make me pay for a ticket sure that's ridiculous (laughs) yeah all right well and they you know hopefully this is just a coma and not a uh, deathbed situation but we'll see we'll see i mean they they're probably just shutting down because their model doesn't work at all insane that it's lasted this long frankly yeah and amc's is just so much easier yeah it's a shame you don't have better amc's near you it really is like it's it's fantastic. I have been feeling lately the disappointment of just being locked into whatever they make available. Right. It doesn't matter that my that the closest one, the Palisades, has twenty one screens because six of them are always to you know the superhero movie or whatever. So right, uh, that's no good. And uh, but I just yeah the convenience of it, the ability to cancel last minute and choose a different showing or what it's very 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 nice. That is nice. The one that I go to downtown is I don't want to call it a dump because it's an okay place. But the theaters themselves are just so uncomfortable. They're old world with the you know upright, rigid seats, nothing plush about yeah, it. Yeah. Some of them are broken or don't have drink holders. And there's no reason for that. They they need sure. to update that. Almost all and now that they now with the app it requires them to choose your seat right. before. So I'm like choosing a, a seat. And I can understand that if, if it's like recliner seating right. or something that's sort of premium. No, you're just yeah. choosing the worst right. seat in the empty theater. <laughs> I have two things to say about that seating situation. One, both theaters near me, almost every room has upgraded to the recliners in the last couple of years in Paramus and Palisades, the two that I go to. But they're already falling apart and half of them don't work and they have disgusting stains that won't come off. Like it's right. just gone to hell really fast. The other thing is that the assigned seating, I was against it at first because I just kind of like being able to go in and feel it out. And I was a get there early kind of person. And then I just kind of accepted it and realized it's kind of cool to not, if I don't want to sit through trailers, I don't really have to. So, right. but the issue is that not everyone else has embraced this concept in terms of understanding it or following it. So there are regularly people who just sit wherever they want. And then there are fights and then, or there are older citizens who, you know, are having very loud disputes or just trying to figure it out as, as it goes along. It has not been a complete success, in my view, in the theaters I've been in. And I want that buffer. I want that seat buffer. And I feel like a lot of people come up to the box office and they just, it, it feels like the person behind the counter is just picking the seats for them and filling it in. So I'll be in a mostly empty theater, but everyone will be seated right around me. So you can't create a buffer like I would like to. That's annoying. And 
I mean, it creates questions in my mind. Like, didn't people select their seats? Why are they confused that they that someone doesn't want them seated in a certain place? Right. It's a part of the process. You have to go through it. So what did they think it was? Yeah. You're not just choosing to then go sit anywhere. I don't understand people. Yeah. No, the worst. All this to say, yeah, I can't see. think of anything I went to. I don't think. Okay. <laughs> I don't I don't think that I went to anything in the theater this week. You this saw week. something last night, but I think we're going to save it for another oh, show. Oh, sure. Yeah. Correct? Oh, I mean, whatever. I I watched Do the Right Thing, as I know you saw it in the theater. Yes. Oh, so you streamed it. I see. Oh, yeah. I streamed it because I couldn't bring myself to leave my house. Sure. And we can really save it for another. Would you like to save it for another time? Uh, I'm thinking it might be worth featuring on an episode, or do you not agree? Sure. No, I agree. Okay. Yes, I think, I think it's my pick for next week. We, I'm way ahead. <laughs> yeah, so we get a little week off. You can watch whatever you want. Great. Um, all right. I didn't see anything else new, except I did see Do the Right Thing in the theater, which was a, a very fun experience. Um, I told you that I showed the favorite to my wife, and she loved it, much to my uh, surprise. <laughs> I <was> so surprised. <laughs> she just got into it, man. She really, really uh, dug it. Well, that's fun. And uh, she didn't even mind that it, it ended insanely. She was something about it just clicked with her and she had a great time. So that was fun. And I, I definitely liked seeing, I, I usually, if I like a movie enough to see it again, I usually enjoy it more the second time because I can just kind of enjoy the craft a little more. Yeah. I like already knowing what happens. Sure. I'm going to, I'm going to go back into my, into my messaging with you. Oh, because I feel like I saw something. I thought you were going to call me out on something that I said. I thought, I thought I was going to get canceled. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. <laughs> I did see two things. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> this is good. This is progress. This is like therapy for people living with memory loss. Um, okay. So I saw The Love Witch finally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I remember in my little theater here, having previews for this probably two or three years ago and thinking it that that looked like a lot of campy fun and I never saw it. And this week I did. And was it ever some good campy fun? All right. I so enjoyed it. It takes place in modern times, but you wouldn't necessarily think it because it's so stylized um, 1960s and early 70s. Yeah. There is just a population of witches who live among the regular population, and yet people are bigoted against them. They're a marginalized group of people. And this tells the story of a lovely young witch who's just trying to go about her life. And it's, it, I believe that it's a, sort of a feminist perspective, sort of a story from the director where it, where it comes from, where this woman wants to give her whole self to just the right man but it's like the men who she finds they love that but they also don't want her to be that and she can't win and her performance is so wonderful and stylized i should look up her name because samantha robinson that is probably right if that is the lead of the love witch it is okay samantha robinson gives just a wonderful performance the whole movie is bizarre and hilarious and this was just my my kind of a joint all right and the other thing that i streamed was diane oh yeah 
which yeah, I need to Google this I because all, I know I've yeah, which I remember hearing about when it first came out. I think it had a pretty limited release. Um, I never made it to the theater though, and I was glad to see that it was available for streaming. I just found this movie to be so quiet and beautiful and true. It's about Diane, who is uh, probably 70-ish years old in a small New England town where everyone's quite tight-knit and everybody knows each other's business. And she cares endlessly for everyone else in her life, always bringing a casserole, always uh, sitting by a hospital bed for a visit, certainly caring for everyone but herself. And she has a grown son who's an addict and gives her grief. And it's just this wonderful slice of her life where she's uh, dealing with loss and grief and family and friend relationships. Uh, Mary Kay Place is a character actress who I'm less familiar with, but I guess she's famous. Hmm. And she gives a remarkable performance. It it just goes to show because there are so many... um, so many kind of who oh who is that character actors involved in this movie and it just shows the value of all of that experience and like what happens when real pros get a good script it it just it just works from start to finish i would highly recommend it all right sounds lovely uh it sounds like shades of gloria bell just in terms of the kind of movie it is and it probably is very nice the only other thing I wanted to mention is that July is half off Criterion Collection sale at Barnes and Noble. So the entire Criterion Collection little section, if they if you have a video area in your Barnes and Noble, they're half off all month long. So those of us who still like the physical media, it's time to stock up. You're like John Lithgow and Tomorrow Man with your Blu-ray. <laughs> I don't feel like that's a good thing to be like. And your DVDs, <laughs> when the government comes to take your. To take your streams. Yeah, right. I still want to have my copy of Men in Black 3. That's a big bowl of wrong. You buy these things for your library and just like, oh, we don't license with them anymore. And then it's just gone. Yeah. My money's not back, though. You're talking about the streaming services. Yeah. Now? Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's fractured enough in terms of what's where. And then you can't even rely on the service having what, you know. They told us that it would be a new world and that every movie that has ever been would be at your fingertips, and it's simply not true. I think that they need to be a little more upfront about what it is what you're getting when you give them money with stuff like that, because that's yeah. a complete ripoff. And with physical media, yeah, it's a niche thing, and there's only a certain type of weirdo who stocks up on, you know, everybody has like a tiny stack of DVDs, but those of us with a wall uh, are considered crazy, but... It's weird how just the convenience of streaming has has just killed this and that you realize the people who are in a position to provide the movies, they don't really care. They just want to know where the money is coming from. So yeah. feel fortunate to have stockpiled what I have, even though I routinely look through the shelf and don't remember buying something and don't know why I would have wanted to own it. But I'll just borrow it from you. <laughs> Perfect. If I ever need it. We'll just meet at the local town square. It's like. It'll be like Netflix. I'll make a little queue. (laughs) Okay. And you can just send them to me one by one. And you'll cover the shipping and everything, but... (laughs) Sure. (laughs) It'll be like the feeding of the 5,000. You've concocted quite a business model for me. (laughs) They'll send me like 
four or five terrible titles, but what will arrive is a bounty. It's <laughs> a right. miracle. Yeah. Well, I got a lot of work to do then. Um, Want to take a break and then talk about the talented Mr. Ripley? Let's do it. All right. Welcome back. Dan, this week's feature is your selection. So why don't you walk us through The Talented Mr. Ripley? The Talented Mr. Ripley is a 1999 American psychological thriller film <laughs> written for the screen, directed by Anthony Minghella. An adaptation of a 1955 novel. It starred Matt Damon and Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Blanchett, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, a real who's who going on there. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe it when I was kind of thinking back to that time period and thinking how English Patient was just two years before this and um, Goodwill Hunting the year previous and um, both Paltrow and Blanchett were up for Oscars that same spring with Paltrow, of course, winning for Shakespeare in Love. Right. It really, really was a it movie yeah to me it seems like a words bait if ever there was sure it didn't turn out that way <laughs> <laughs> wasn't in the cards no it's it's wonderfully painfully 90s uh i i was realizing on the rewatch even the movie poster just the way it looked stuff doesn't yeah. look like that anymore i saw um this movie when it came out which um was what end of 99 and i think that i was really taken with it and i think i went twice to the theater bringing other people with me the second time wow. i so identified with <laughs> the main character <laughs> wow. which i think is a little bit of you know 18 year old self-importance or me just wanting to just show how angsty and tortured i was but I think there's also something to it uh, that from a, a conversion therapy-esque standpoint where you're just made to feel when you're a closeted gay person, like your worlds are just about to collide at every second and you're, in every moment is you trying to throw people off your track and really you're mentally tortured with this disorder and you wish you could let someone in, but you just can't, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that I probably related <laughs> to that aspect of his uh, of his psyche. Um, what was the when was the first time that you saw this? I here, here's the deal. I'm going to just be clean about this. I don't know if I saw this. I thought I did until I rewatched it. <laughs> Interesting. So I've either absorbed some kind of like pop culture attitude about it and assumed it as my own, or I saw something else and confused them. You know what? The only th you know what? This is very strange, but I have one specific memory associated with this movie. And it is, I believe it must be an SNL sketch of the town, a spoof of talented Mr. Ripley, but with Damon and Affleck. Huh? And I, I see Ben Affleck pulling off a wig and holding a knife 
and I'm pretty sure Damon must have hosted SNL or something in the wake you know, in the time of this movie. Anyway, I so I very quickly realized that I had never seen it before. <laughs> uh, I dug it more than I thought I would. I'm not because Mingela to me means English patient, which is, you know, I, right. I need to revisit that, too. But I have a, my attitude about that movie. And so I kind of expected it to be a little more histrionic and and I expected to roll my eyes more. I actually really got into it. I actually liked it. I think it's a really good thriller. I think it's good source material that has been competently adapted. I have two big questions about it that I want to present. I don't want to jump the gun, but I'll praise it a little more. And also I want to go back to your thoughts. Back to what I like. I like, you're right, it's very 90s. It's a little bit, you know, it's, it's dated. It's very Miramax in the late 90s. But I like the lavish production. I like the Europe settings. The cast is mostly excellent. Uh, Jude Law is uh, is is great. Gwyneth is good. And I mean, saying that Philip Seymour Hoffman is is good is like, duh, but he's probably the strongest performance in any movie he's in. But yeah, I got kind of caught up in it and I I enjoyed it. I do have my issues. Are you ready to talk about issues or do you have more to say? I'll talk about the cast just for a second. Yeah, please. So I think that Damon is very good. I think that you know, he was a screenwriter, of course, with uh, with Affleck for Goodwill Hunting the year previous, and so they're Oscar-winning writers. But I think the thing with with Matt is he can really act. We saw that in Goodwill Hunting, and we see it here. Jude Law, I know that he had done stuff before, but I think this was the first performance of his that I was aware of, really remembering. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I think, is wonderful. This character is really one-dimensional on the page. And I think he brings a lot of charisma to it. Yeah. I understand he gained some weight for the role. So screw him. <laughs> and Gwyneth. Uh, he was grotesque in this movie. <laughs> I know. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow is an actress who I like. I know that her Oscar win for Shakespeare in Love isn't everyone's favorite happening, but I liked it. I still like that performance. I like I like her in this movie. I think I don't like her character as much as written. I think that she's pretty one-dimensional you know when she's having entrances into scenes where she's telling bits of her backstory to Ripley that should have already been covered if this were were a real friendship I felt like there was times when she was almost talking to the audience instead of the Mm -hmm. person that she was talking to and the thing with her character is that I mean she was right in the end she saw everything for what it was and I I don't know that I felt she didn't come alive until too late in the proceedings. She was kind of window dressing yeah. early and then became very important. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back and seeing her, I think this is a better one to revisit her in, in terms of performance than Shakespeare in love. She's fine in that, but everybody has their, you know, because of the Oscar thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's like going back and remembering that Oprah is a great actor right. when that's not what she is now. Like, and Gwyneth is something else now, but yeah, she's really good. And, yeah. and she and law are good together. And I buy them as these kind of, spoiled rich kids on the take in Europe. So do I. Um I think and here's here's a funny thing with aging is that I I had no sense when I first saw this that Kate Blanchett's character is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Because of course that's how wealthy people conduct themselves. <laughs> you know, it's right. like oh no, she she's a, a satire sort of a character. And I I mean Blanchett of course 
plays anything she does wonderfully. My problem with her character is the unbelievable coincidence time after time. Like yeah. the first time they meet, there was no reason they should have met when they're getting their luggage. And why did he pretend to be Dickie Greenleaf in that moment? He had no motivation for it. And then she just keeps running into him at the worst moments. Yeah. And that to me was almost, it was more literary because there's nothing realistic about her character arc. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me raise something in this. We might have our first disagreement on our hands because okay. uh, I don't like Matt Damon in this movie. Okay. That's kind of my one major issue. I like him. I love Damon in general. I think he's grown into a really interesting actor. And I don't think he's bad in this movie. I don't think it's a performance issue. I think it might be a casting issue. Say more about um, it. Because I feel like, well, are you, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying this as someone with familiarity, but do you have familiarity with the source material at all? No, nothing. So this is a series of novels where the twist is that it's not the hero that you follow. It's the villain. So Ripley is a character who shows up in several books and he always is doing these terrible things. He's a horrible person, but he's endlessly charming and he's a mastermind and he does things, you know, and he gets away with it every time. Um, and so to me, I felt like Damon, the way he played this character, at least the way he came across as this character was not a mastermind. He was kind of sweaty and anxious and green and so that, to me, made it feel like when he's constantly successful in his treachery, it felt like dumb luck. It felt like a whole lot of contrivance and convenience, as opposed to him being this brilliant young sociopath, for sure, if not psychopath. And I, it's, I'm okay with it being an open question, did he plan all this from the beginning or did he just stumble into it? But I think at some point there needs to be it really made it look like he desperately just kind of mumbled his way through each thing that happened. And that does, to me, it doesn't sell the overall plot as well as him having some measure of criminal genius. I'll agree with you on that. I I mean, I think that he seems like he's just going moment to moment lying for no reason. Yeah. (laughs) Unless he's trying to cover up his own crimes. I almost see, I didn't want the movie to be a second longer. It is so long, Mm -hmm. but by the end, what was he going to do next? He's stuck on this boat. A crew of people on the boat think he is someone who is probably murdered. Right. <laughs> is his uh, person he's traveling with has been murdered. <laughs> right. What What did he do next? Clearly, the the you know Peter was discovered dead, presumably, and right. people think he's somebody else. What and happened? He just, and he just came up with some new lie, and everybody right. bought it. <laughs> Right. He just whistled his way off the boat. Right. He thought he was going to get off that boat without police being there. Oh, Dickie Greenleaf's aboard this boat and someone else has died. And, you know, there, but that's there was the interesting part is that in this in the world of Ripley in the novels, you are to expect that he got away with it. But you're saying the way you read the movie, there's no way he got off that boat. I don't see how he did. And I also think he made the wrong choice in in murdering Peter instead of Meredith. Murdering the only good person in the whole story. Right. I'm just right. And I didn't even remember Peter as a character, which is interesting because to me, I would have been interested in their relationship, but I guess I wasn't the, you know, the Wikipedia plot lines just like, it is heavily implied that they are lovers. And I was like, Oh, come on heavily (laughs) implied. But, but really though, why wasn't that more overt? 
because right. I don't know if Ripley is gay or not, or if that, or if he just uh, does whatever is convenient for his own crimes or something. But there seemed to be a real tenderness and mutual affection between those two. And I wish we could have seen a little bit of that. Peter seemed super understanding and wanting to hear him out. Like after he saw him with Meredith on the boat deck, it yeah. seemed like he, he had a real catch there. And it seemed like uh, Ripley could have just been like, look, this is stupid. But when we, I met this person, I told her I was Dickie Greenleaf, you know, Peter maybe started to put it together at that point. But what happened with him? Because he used to be Marge's friend and confidant. That's how he was introduced. And right. he was there as part of these de- deceptions of who saw Dickie when and whatever. Why was he not believing Marge when she was freaking out about being threatened by him in the bathrobe with the razor, et cetera? Right, right. And he's just kind of like, oh, you cut your hand on your razor. Be more careful there. Yeah. Just like, no, your best friend is terrified. And right. she makes a really good case. <laughs> yeah. Do you you just see past all that? So anyway, I, I, I guess I, without looking at the source material and just taking this movie for what it is, I don't buy that he's just bumbling about and having stuff fall in his lap as far as people believing his ridiculous lies. I just go with it. I guess I suspend my disbelief on that. Mm-hmm. And I and I like and I like Damon's portrayal in it. Yeah, okay. Well, my other question that I wanted to raise is a little more I'll just probably have to defer and and listen, but is this considered an LGBT movie? Or does it treat gayness as kind of a prop or a, or a little dangerous game? That's one thing that I kind of couldn't quite... As you just said, in 1999, there's no reason for it to be as sheepish about things as it as it plays it. Right. I mean, and yet it was a different world, I guess. Um, I don't really know that much of Benghella's filmography as far as kind of what can be expected from him on these matters. There's a definite um, eye toward the men in the movie, for sure. Mm-hmm. Even from the first beach scene, when he's going to approach Marge and Dickie on the beach, all I'm seeing are men on that beach. Mm-hmm. It, almost like a homoerotic travelogue, too, yeah. you know? Yeah. And he's put on, you know, this yellow bathing suit that, of course, stands out among anything else. I thought that the chess scene in the tub was not erotic i thought it was kind of silly and ridiculous mm-hmm. that <laughs> why are we why are we zooming in on jude law's hand as if he's doing something sensual when he moves his piece and then the strange can i get in that's a that's a very strange thing to say to right. somebody just like i meant after <laughs> you know right. and so i having forgotten the peter element in this I, I was a little confused at that point as to what was going on between the two of them, because it always just seemed like um, Tom is mentally disturbed and wants the life that Dickie has, maybe has this affinity toward him in a fraternal sort of way um, or crossing a boundary, just ha- having to do with his own self-loathing. Um, that That's how I read the boat scene in the end because he has this intense jealousy of him and also resentment. I, I just didn't read a lot of gay vibe yeah. into anything in the movie at first. And then the whole thing with Peter, and that seemed very sweet and legitimate, and people just sort of went with it. 
I didn't get uh, a sense from anyone who who uh, inferred that they were a couple that they had a problem with it. But then he, he kills him. <laughs> right. Is he someone who can get intimate with anybody to suit his needs and then dispose of that? Like, is he just a psychopath? That's how I read it, except for the the sweetness that he had with Peter until it wasn't sweet. Yeah, I he he's he's a very guarded person, uh, Tom Ripley, and he has that monologue about just wanting to toss somebody the key to this inner um, chamber of terror that lives inside of him. And I wish we could have gotten a sense as to what that is. What is that trauma that he keeps referencing that is haunting him and giving him these impulses to do unthinkable things? And he's very ready to open up to this person who cares for him and he seems to care for him too. So why would you rather kill that person and lose that than just tell him even a bit of the truth of what you've done? He seems like Peter seems like an understanding guy. You just need to get off that boat. Yeah. And, and I said, mm, no, I'm going to make this worse by, by causing another death. That seems to be the act of a person who's not thinking in a rational way. Right. And that being the climax of the movie, that being the ending, yeah. it just kind of feels like escalating. Like you could almost say, okay, he kills, he, he kills Dickie out of desperation and weirdness because of that relationship and that weird moment. Okay, then he does this. He does everything to be rash. But by the time Maud is on that dock and hitting him with her purse or whatever and crying, and he's just kind of smiling at her, you're like, "Oh my god, this guy's a Looney Tune!" Right. And then he then on the boat, it's like it's just this escalation to him being this, I guess, hundred percent villain. <laughs> that seems to be what it is. The thing about the rings was so strange too for someone who's an adept liar he could have made up any reason why he had those rings. Yeah. Just saying, you know, Dickie left them behind. He, you know, told me I could have anything of his, whatever. Right. And it, th- some of those scenes where he's, and I know that's the tension and it is, it is a tense movie. And and whenever, uh, Freddie shows up or somebody shows up who, you know, he doesn't want to be seen by it, it really is tense. But then he, I feel like it almost plays like a Farrelly brothers movie or something where he's just like kind of goofily making up a story and, I don't know. I, I don't. It might be helpful too if I just had not read about the source material and just taken it as a self-contained movie and taken it on its own terms. Yeah, he certainly isn't talented as portrayed in this. Right. In yeah. this film, I I wouldn't have liked it if he were. I would have found that to be gross. I I don't want to think that someone did the terrible things that he did all on purpose and calculated like a mastermind. Right. And I think I that's re- what the novels are. It's like a forensic thing of the way you would follow a detective around, but except you're following around the madman. Yeah, I don't like that. I I would rather think that he was disturbed and bumbled his way through things for his own benefit rather than to think that this was all plotted. That's not interesting to me. Yeah. There is a 1960 film adaptation of the same novel. Uh, but the movie's called Purple Noon, and it is streaming on the Criterion channel this month. Oh, is it? I did see that that movie exists, and I was curious about it. I might uh, I might just pop it on and watch 10 minutes and see if it grabs me, but I'm curious to see the same mater- material adapted and so um, contemporary to the actual book. 
It's five years after it's out. So DiCaprio declined to play the role. What kind of movie do you think that would have been? Hmm. Yeah, I think that might have been a little more twisted. I think back then I I thought of them both similarly, though. Just kind of green, mm-hmm. young, new actors with kind of just scrunchy-faced, like, you know, I don't know. Like, they were kind of in the same category for me back then. And they both have proven themselves, I think, to be great actors since. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm not sure. I think, to. I mean, obviously it wouldn't work today. We're all too old. But today, Leo is just so far ahead of Damon as an actor. Yeah, you sure. know, and prestige and everything else. Um, then I'm not sure if what what major difference it would have made for me. Yeah, I think about uh, Hoffman in the role. Mm-hmm. Now he's physically not someone who could be mistaken for Jude Law, so I'm not sure he would, you know. But right. him, he would bring a depth to that character certainly that would be fascinating. Get Jonah Hill or somebody to play Vicky, right? right. I find that in a movie like this, though, Hoffman's almost, you have to be careful with him. He's too, he brings too much of like a gut punch of authentic feeling or like something about his, the gravitas of his performing that I almost didn't want. I felt like, I guess I was maybe, maybe, maybe this might all be by design that I was feeling kind of like Tom Ripley. Like, I don't want this guy to come in and mess everything up. Yeah. I think that you do uh, root for the antihero against freddie to a degree yeah yeah like i wasn't wanting freddie to figure it out at all i wasn't wanting him to be there he he plays just like the wonderful you know what is a hyannis port or whatever yeah trust fund uh insufferable (laughs) flout um we would seem super gay in any other context Mm -hmm. but not in this one yeah I enjoyed this movie so much more than uh, than the best than a few of the best picture nominees that year. It seems like this one was really going for Oscars with the um, early December release and its pedigree with its director and its actors. This seemed like a look at me Oscar movie, and it just could not get awards attention yeah. that year. I so I preferred it to say something like The Insider. Mm-hmm. Or even the Cider House rules. Yeah. Yeah, as to the question of, of holding up, I really, yeah, like you say, it's 90s. It's located where it is. I'm happy to see everybody in the cast. I think that it's still, I, it affected me. I was into it. I, I liked watching it. I think it does hold up. Oh, I think so too. It's fun watching these actors, this sweeping, overly dramatic setting and score with uh I mean, soft focus isn't the word, but everything just looks warm. Um, I, I think that I wanted to go to Italy after I saw this movie. I don't anymore. Yeah. It looks <laughs> looks overwhelming to me today. I w- I'm, a, I'm obsessed with uh, people's ages. And so I saw that um, Blanchett was 30 in this movie. And uh, wow. two, I think Damon was 28 and then Law and Paltrow were 26 or something like that. That just seems so wonderful and young for them. Yeah. Yeah, and all of them, uh, well, except for the the dead one, they all have uh, remarkable careers to this day. Yeah, I mean, and he had a remarkable career enough himself. Yeah, is Jude Law doing interesting things? He's in Captain Marvel, so I ask again: Is he doing interesting things? <laughs> I don't know. Um, let's take a look at what he's up to. 
Oh, yeah. He's in other things. He was in Vox Lux. Oh. Which will maybe... I need to catch up. Go back. That. Go back. to Had you not seen it? I have not. Okay. Please watch that. <laughs> Correct. And, and tell me everything you think about <laughs> okay. it. Oh, Jude Law was Sexy Pope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Remember the uh, Twitter got really excited of him in the white Speedo? Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't long ago. Were there at least uh, nominations for Oscars for this movie? There were. Um, Law was nominated. And um, Mangala for Adapted Screenplay. And then it was nominated for Art Direction, Costumes, and Score. Hmm. I feel like it could have done better than that. Yeah. I wasn't someone beating the drum that year for that movie. but $40 million budget. That's pretty huge for a movie like this in 1999. That's what I'm saying. I think that this was really seen as being an, an awards contender. Was this his blank check movie money. after English Patient? It must have been. And I just look at that cast that he assembled. It's better. Isn't it better? Is it better? Than English Patient. Like they gave, if, if he oh. got to make this off of the clout from English Patient. I don't know. I would maybe need to revisit English Patient myself. My memory of it. I, I hold it in very high esteem. I love mm. the English patient. Yeah, I need to revisit it too because I'm relying on archaic attitudes. Well, maybe I'll choose it one of these times and we can look at it. All right. Anything else on the movie, Dan? I don't think so. Uh, interesting selection. Thanks for selecting it. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, thanks, everybody. This has been our podcast. We are Dan and Josh. You can follow both of us on Twitter and Letterboxd. The show is at Holds Up Pod on Twitter. Our music is by Jonah Rapino. And we will check you out next week. Thank you, Dan. Bye. <laughs>